I've, I've never actually taught through a gospel before. I've taught bits and pieces of uh, gospel sections from the Bible, but I've never actually gone through, in terms of preaching, uh, an entire gospel. I'm going to go through the, the gospel of Mark together as a church in this next season. Um, why, why, why are we doing that? Well, um, if, if you want to know about Christianity, if you want to know more about Christianity, then this is one of the best places to start in terms of our understanding of the Christian faith. We're going to take a, a, a careful and a, and a studied look at the man in the center of the faith, um, the belief and practice of the church. The man who stands at the center of all of that is called Jesus of Nazareth. And so we're going to look at uh, this uh, gospel account um, and, and try and figure out more about him and what we can learn, um, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. And I actually think that, that going through a gospel like this and just taking our time through it over the next few weeks is going to be helpful for a variety, a whole spectrum of people, um, depending on where, where you stand in terms of faith and um, you know, relationship with God. Um, for example, if you, if you are uh, listening to this and you're, you're just say, maybe not convinced, uh, you're skeptical um, about the claims of Christianity, about Christianity as a faith system in general, then I would like to invite you this morning uh, to, to learn with us and learn together from the primary sources. And the Gospel of Mark is considered to be one of the primary sources that we get our knowledge and information about Jesus of Nazareth from. And, and if that's you, and if you're not sure about where you stand, if you're outside the faith or you're just interested to learn more, I want to challenge you uh, this morning at the start of our new series um, to, to try and understand who Jesus is and, and what he claims to be from himself. Uh, I want you to think, because I think a lot of, a lot of people who, who reject uh, Christianity do so because of maybe experiences they've had in the past with Christians or the church, for example, or they do so based on false ideas about the faith. In short, a lot of people I meet have never actually taken the time to do the real thinking, to do the reading, and to truly consider what Jesus says about himself. So I think that going through the Gospel of Mark will be helpful um, if, that's, if that's where you're from, that's your background. But maybe, um, you, you know, you, you wouldn't say you're, you're a skeptic or a, even an interested onlooker. You're actually a believer in Jesus. Is there anything in the Gospel of Mark for you? Is this not just stuff you've heard of before? And I hope to show you again over this next few weeks as we go through the Gospel of Mark, um, if you're a believer in Jesus, I, I want you, I'm challenging you to freshly examine Jesus um, almost from a, from a new perspective. I'm not saying forget everything you know about him. But what I am saying is that when we engage with um, the primary text, in, in this case, the Gospel of Mark, um, I, I, my, my conviction is that as believers in Jesus, we will come to a, a renewed faith, a deepened faith, and it'll firm up any areas of your sort of knowledge about Jesus and of the Gospel in general, and it'll, it'll give you assurance, confidence in what you believe. And so if that's you and you're already a believer, let's listen together. Let's listen humbly, not thinking we've got all the answers straight and that we know everything. Um, let's listen humbly. Let's allow God's word to challenge us afresh because we don't want to settle, do we, as, as believers in Jesus for a superficial understanding. Let's, let's hear afresh what God is saying through the scripture. 
And um, let's just say then, maybe on the other end of the scale, uh, you've got the, the skeptic, you've got the, the believer in Jesus, maybe let's just say the practitioner. Um, or maybe another word we could say is the enthusiastic participant in the Christian faith. The enthusiastic participant. And, and, and for you, my, my hope is, and my prayer, is that uh, when we see uh, what Jesus has done and what he has claimed, um, we will also get caught up in what the good news does. Yes, the good news is a message. Absolutely. Amen. Um, but it does something. It transforms us. It calls us. It creates a community and it calls us to, to enact and to carry on uh, with this message. And that, that is where um, there is real change, real uh, momentum into our world in terms of bringing the good news of Jesus. A bit of background before we start to look at those verses Isaac's read for us. Um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is the earliest, scholars believe, is the earliest um, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, written about 50 to 60 AD, which means we're talking about 20 or 30 years after the, the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, so, so for, probably for Mark and for many others that, that he's maybe spoken to in forming this gospel account, uh, this is living memory. This is eyewitness account. This is stuff that actually happened there and then. Um, and uh, you know, the, the scholarly consensus is that the gospel of Mark actually forms the basis for Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke came along uh, a few years later, took what Mark had already put together, added some of their own material, their own experiences, interactions, and so forth. But Mark seems to be the most fundamental um, of, of the three. John, by the way, is entirely independent. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He, he, he did his own thing completely differently. It's awesome. Uh, how, how has it come down to us? Um, if you're not really uh, interested in history or the tech, tech, technique of uh, how the Bible came about, then you can, you can sign off for a few seconds here. Um, just let me say, say though, that how, how, did, how did this gospel of Mark come to be put in our Bibles and how did it come down to us today? Well, uh, until very recently, the earliest manuscripts and sources of the gospel of Mark came from around 200 AD. All right? So he wrote this about 50 to 60, but the earliest sort of written documentation that we found, that, that, that scholars have found, from about 200 to 250 AD. But two years ago, 2018, um, some extra fragments were published, were found and published, and they have been dated to come from in and around 150 AD. So we're talking about 100 years after they were written. And um, I've got a picture of them right here, just in case you want to know what bits of old Bible look like. There they are, um, apparently about four centimeters in width and diameter, and they were, they were originally part of an old uh, sort of um, an ancient book called a codex, and so most likely it was sort of torn off uh, from its binding at the bottom. This was found in Egypt and, as I say, published just a few years ago. And the cool thing is um, that some of the, the lettering here on the left, that piece there, is the exact few verses that we've just had read to us. Uh, part of that is Mark 1, verses 6 through 8. The bit on the right uh, is 16 to 18. And the, the cool thing is, and the reason why this is very exciting if you're into this sort of thing, is it goes to show that we've got an even earlier fragment of the Gospel of Mark from incredibly early on, and it shows how highly accurate um, the Scriptures are in terms of what 
you know, the, the Greek translations that we have uh, received. So that can boost our confidence that what we're reading today um, is, is very, very, very highly accurate uh, from what Mark originally wrote in AD 50 to 60. Okay, that's all I want to say. Now, you can come back in. If you signed off there, you can come back in because this is where the sermon really begins. So what we're going to do today is uh, look at the three sort of um, you know, headlines, I suppose, that we're going to pick up as we go through the Gospel of Mark bit by bit. Uh, firstly, uh, we'll see, um, first of all, that the Gospel of Mark wants to help people recognize Jesus, number one. Number two, we want to, the Gospel of Mark wants to help people respond to Jesus, and number three, thirdly, um, how to receive the gift of Jesus. So recognize, respond, and receive. And we'll see this play out throughout the entire gospel narrative. Okay, first of all, have a look at your verses with you because they're handy to have. Uh, it, it, the introduction to the entire thing, the theme tune, if you like, is this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 1. That is, that is the, the point that, that Mark is doing. He's trying to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first word is beginning. Um, we've added the because that's what we'd have, but the actual first word in the Greek is just beginning, the beginning. Um, and Mark is saying, here it is. This is it. This is the announcement that I'm making to you. Uh, the other book in the Bible, by the way, that begins with the word beginning is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That also begins with the word beginning. Right? So Mark, I think, is probably just saying, look, as significant as the start of, of, of human history is way back at the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them, new beginning, gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a significant, unheard of, new thing. This is new news. No one has ever heard this before. The beginning of the gospel, that is quite simply the good news. The Greek word is euangelion, a good message. It simply means an announcement. Um, and this would have been a familiar term in, in, uh, in the ancient world, uh, particularly if there was a military victory uh, achieved in far-off places by your own sort of your home army, so to speak. That would be announced. The good news would be announced. Um, or, for example, if, if a dignitary is coming to your city, you know, um, victorious military commander, good news is announced, the gospel is announced, he's coming. Even Caesar's birthday um, was announced at various times as gospel, good news. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes these big claims, right, at the, at the start. He doesn't, he doesn't substantiate them. Uh, he makes these big claims about the central figure that he's going to talk about. Um, he's going to substantiate them, by the way, as we go through, as he lays out what he means uh, over the next 16 chapters of the gospel. Right? He's Jesus. Uh, let's look at that for a second. Jesus was a familiar first name uh, in, in that context. Uh, even today, and uh, we don't really get it here so much, but certainly in, in uh, maybe Spain and places like that, uh, the name Ye Jesus uh, or as footballers, Brazilian footballers or something. Uh, I think it's one he plays for Manchester City. Um, he, it would be a fairly familiar name. Uh, nothing special there. It, just mean, it means God saves, which is pretty cool, but uh, it would have been fairly common. But Christ, that's a different title. Uh, Christ means the Messiah, right? It means the anointed one, God's chosen one, someone who's been set apart by God for a special task. He's the Messiah, that's the other word. That's the, that's the Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ. It means the same thing, anointed one. 
And so Mark asserts here right at the start, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He has divine status. Again, he makes big claims, right? And, and, and uh, he, he brings the evidence as the gospel goes on, as his account opens up. But every word in the start of this uh, gospel um, book is pregnant with meaning. And so he wants to write to convince, to affirm, to assure his readers that Jesus is who he claims to be. And so today, right, when we read uh, these verses that, that Isaac just read for us, um, we're, we're going we're to then think about this through the lens of this, this special character that we've come across here. His name is John the Baptist. Um, doesn't call him that there, but his name is John anyway. We refer to him as John the Baptist to distinguish him from John the Apostle. Um, and uh, he, you know, just like what we've been saying, he is taking the role of one of these announcers or forerunners going into a place sent ahead of the dignitary to bear the good news into the towns and villages. Get ready. His message is, something big is about to happen. The beginning is here. The king is coming. The, the victorious general is on his way. And this is a job performed by John the Baptist. And so with him, in, in verses 2 and 3, then we get some Hebrew scriptures, parts of the Old Testament, some quotes from the prophets. Um, prepare the way. You know, I send my messenger before your, your face. He will prepare your way. A voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was saying to people, get ready. God is coming. The Lord is on his way. He's coming to save you. He's coming to rescue you. Prepare yourselves. Just, just so you know, the, the, the background, you know, the sort of uh, context there um, was that people, in, 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 uh, you know, particularly the, the children of Israel, um, in, living in Palestine at that time, um, the air was thick with this hope, this, this long-awaited Messiah, this figure that the prophets had been predicting and demonstrating and hoping for, this yearning. And, and, and so the people were, were, were heavy with expectation for decades and centuries. And, and various figures before Jesus sort of rose up in recent history uh, to, to, to you know, maybe bring a rebellion against you know, whoever was in charge at the time. But each time they were disappointed, each time the, the one they thought that was the Messiah was crushed down. I don't, I don't know if you've been watching your TV screens over the last sort of 24 hours at all, but you may be tuning in and you see uh, the cameras in certain cities in the United States and you see people out on the streets, they're, they're partying. You know, they are um, just so pleased that their candidate won the presidential election and got in. And uh, then you see others who, uh, you know, from, from the Trump-supporting camp who, are, who just look devastated and are sad uh, because their man didn't get in again. They're devastated. And so, in some ways, um, this is kind of the thing that's going on in the, in the background with the people, not saying with presidential elections in Palestine, uh, but with this hope, this is the guy, he's the one. And then four years later, oh, no, not him. It wasn't him after all. And then new hope, fresh hope, ah, oh, new president, it's him, he's going to lead us. We're going we're gonna to come to the promised land. No, he failed us too. That ended, that ended badly. We didn't get a second term. And so the people, uh, this is their mindset. This is their, uh, their thoughts. And so we're into that situation. We have John the Baptist coming in saying, get ready, prepare. He's coming. Uh, I'm going to tell you ahead of time so you don't miss him. So you recognize Jesus. Don't miss him. And as we'll, we'll go on to see as we go through the Gospel of Mark, 
um, so many people had a, had a narrow expectation of Jesus and what the Messiah should be doing, how he should be packaged, how he had to sort of fit preformed ideas. People had uh, political ideas about what the Messiah should do. They had social ideas about what changes he should make. They had religious ideas about the kind of person he should be. Everybody, uh, by and large, that came up and experienced Jesus had an agenda for him. They had a box to fit the Messiah in. And the problem is today, right here as we listen to this, if we do that, as people listening and trying to understand the claims of Jesus, we can miss or risk missing Jesus as well. We can, we can risk failing to recognize him when he comes. Um, and I, I, I say this because uh, I, I want, as I was saying at the start, I want to challenge you to allow Jesus to show himself to you on his own terms, based on what he actually said and did, not what you think he should have said and done. Uh, this is essential, by the way, to understanding and recognizing who Jesus is, as he is, not as you think he should be. Uh, I mean, many, many people that you and I will meet and work with, have in our families, etc., will, will dismiss Jesus uh, because of a deficient understanding of who he is and what he's done. Because they haven't given time to really listen and read and think through the claims. So matter what, no matter what you currently think this morning as you listen to this, my challenge to you is to allow Jesus to show himself on his own terms to you as we read and as we study, as we reflect on this. So first of all, uh, Mark will show us, the Gospel of Mark will show us, to recognise Jesus. But then the second thing that we're called and challenged to do as we study this is to respond to Jesus. Um, John the Baptist, there he is, preaching, and he's hailing, he's, he's speaking out, but he's in the wilderness. That just seems to be an odd place to go, right? If you want to try and build up a bit of an influence, a bit of a following, you'd probably go into the city, wouldn't you? You'd get your Instagram sorted, you'd get your social media campaign rocking, you maybe even hire a PR consultant. He did none of that. He went in the opposite direction. He, he went into the wilderness. Why did he do that? What was the point of going into the wilderness? How did that bring credibility and influence? All the players, right? The elites are in the city. Well, uh, traditionally, the wilderness, um, there's plenty of it where he was. The wilderness was the place of prophets. It was the place of holy men. Um, it was the place where you went out to be at one with God, to sort of detach yourself from the sinful cities and go and be with God and you would go to the wilderness for that. In fact, at that time, around this time of ministry, in the life of Jesus, entire communities left society and they set up shop out in the wilderness in various caves and, and, and uh, primitive structures so that they could be at one with God in the wilderness. And John, it seems to be, uh, possibly was part of one of these communities. We're not sure, for, uh, we're, not, we're not deadly sure, but uh, he, he led what it looks like an ascetic lifestyle. He sort of said no to comforts. Uh, he, he, he went for basic living. He, he, he tried to live off the grid. That sounds really good right now, doesn't it? To, to go and live off the grid and detach and unplug for a little bit. And it even gives us a description about what he wore down in verse 
6, it says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. It's not just a comment, by the way, on, on his weird dress sense, although it is weird. People ordinarily wouldn't have dressed like that. Um, but this is a very deliberate action from John, and, and Mark, the writer, is, is, is highlighting this. Why, why is it important that we understand what John was wearing, that he wore a hairy camel's coat? Well, a tradition held that before God would return to his people in power to inaugurate his kingdom, Elijah the prophet would appear. And, and, and lead the people back to God. That's what tradition held at the time. And what did Elijah wear hundreds of years earlier? You can read it in 2 Kings 1.8 if you want. He wore a hairy coat and a leather belt. And Elijah was considered by many as the greatest prophet of old. So there we have, fast forward to the, the, the times here in Mark 1, John, there he was, in the wilderness with his odd clothes that sort of vaguely reminded people of Elijah, the great prophet. There he is with his odd diet, the strange desert man, obscure, but it says that the crowds came to him. All the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. They were listening to his preaching. When he was saying, God is coming, get ready, they went. And they, they, they were absorbed by this. It was electric. This strange desert man seemed to gather these huge crowds. And he was doing everything, it seems, to prevent that from happening. And yet they kept on coming out. Prepare yourselves, he would say. Repent is the word he uses here. Turn to God away from your sinfulness, he would cry. Live for God and not for yourself. He would be preaching. Give yourself to God and not to your own priorities. That's what he's calling. Organize your lives around God and his purposes, not your own drives and desires. Repent. That's what it means. And they did. They came in their droves, all the country, it says, all the city. And what did they do? It says they confessed their sins in verse 5. And they repented, they tu that's turning, that's what repenting is, turning to God in preference of themselves or other things. And when they did that, John baptized them. And he said to them, one who is coming is mightier than me, he's greater than me. I'm not even worthy to be his servant, I'm not even worthy to, to be a servant who can bend down and untie his shoelaces. He, the one coming after me, he is so great. He is so marvelous. He is so mighty. He is so wonderful. He is so amazing. Give yourselves to him. Prepare your hearts. That's what he was saying to them. And that's what, that's what happened. In very, very basic terms, for us today, that's how, that's how we respond to Jesus. That's how we respond to the message of the gospel. Turn to Jesus, which repenting, that's the Bible word, rep repent, turn to Jesus. Confessing our sins as we go, because we turn to Jesus, we know we need him, and, and, and life that we have been trying to live on our own steam has not worked out for us. We've gone against God. Confessing our sins and get baptized. What we see here in seed form is what the church continued to do in the early days, and we read that in the book of Acts. We studied that as a church last year. And that's what we do here at Foundation Church as well. We do this baptism uh, procedure, uh, which, which, which talks of this washing and cleansing and immersing when we put someone into water. 
We say these days it's the sign and the seal of what Jesus has done for us and our response to it. For John, it was like a a baptism of preparation about something that was going to happen. Um, For us today, baptism is about what has already happened. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's the same idea. Marking a newness of life, a a turning around and a living for God. See, when we recognize Jesus and are drawn in and amazed by him, then the next stage, as we're saying here, is to respond. And we do that in faith and repentance and baptism. And baptism, as as we've been thinking, marks out the believer in Jesus. And it says this person, this this man, this woman, this child, uh, is part of his people. That's what baptism is. It says that the new age has arrived. The new relationship between Jesus and the person being baptized. He or she has a new identity. As we saw in the book of Acts, they continued this practice in the early church. Believe and be baptized, they said. Or as we're saying here, recognize Jesus and respond to Jesus. As we, as we progress through the gospel of Mark... Um, My hope is that we'll recognize Jesus on his own terms. And as we do that, we'll respond as a community to Jesus through faith, through repentance, and marking out, being marked out by baptism. We say as we respond to Jesus, I'm in. I'm on board. Jesus has come to me. He's forgiven my sins. He's rescued me. That's what we say as a community on mission. So we recognize Jesus respond to Jesus and thirdly finally receive the gift of Jesus you know a response is required right whenever whenever um, it comes to to faith and and the Christian message uh, it's not something that's passive it doesn't just happen to you or or, or is done to you Uh, a reaction is required from you you need to exercise faith you need to receive the gift Um, you need to go forward for baptism that's all part of your response to Jesus I can't do that for you. The church can't do that for you, so to speak. It's something you need to do. But then, after that, receive the gift of Jesus. Here in verse 8, John the Baptist says, I've baptized you, O Judah and Jerusalem, I've baptized you with water. He, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What is that all about? Right there. Maybe you're familiar, uh, depending on your background, maybe you're familiar with baptism or, in general, sort of water rituals that the churches do, uh, whether it's christening of babies or, or maybe you've been to a baptism service of someone who's shared their faith in Christ and then been baptized. Um, maybe you're familiar with that bit, the baptism in water. But what about this thing here, baptism in the Holy Spirit? What is that? That sounds weird. It sounds cool. What is it? A bit of background helps, as ever, when it comes to studying the Bible. Um, all of this, by the way, uh, this baptism in the Holy Spirit links back to John's role and John's message. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures, um, they carry this hope that one day God would visit his people with power. That he would come again, he would restore his kingdom that had fallen on earth. And, and the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures saw this. In various ways, various levels of insight and revelation, some receiving dreams, some writing songs, some writing poetry, 
But they saw this from various angles, various insights, but God revealed this progressively to them over time. And when you add it together, and when you read the scriptures from, from, sort of, you know, from our side of history, they present this overwhelming picture to the people that Mark, uh, John, was talk, uh, John the Baptist was talking to, presents an overwhelming picture that, that God is not done with us yet. He still has plans for us. There's a great day coming. Even the, the prophets called it the day of the Lord. This great day, this great moment in history when God would return to his people, right? He would bring judgment on evil and deal with all of that. And he would bring blessing and victory to, to the righteous people, to his own people. And he would come and set up his kingdom and install his king and live with his people. That's what the people were hoping for. That's what the prophets in their various voices were saying. And that's why John the Baptist gathered such immense crowds. Because people were ready for it. Let's look at one or two of those Old Testament scriptures just to show where we're getting this from. Isaiah 44, for example, says this. This is God uh, through the prophet Isaiah. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by a flowing stream. He goes on to say, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This great day when God will pour water, pour his spirit out. And there may be a, one you, you may be more familiar with, Joel chapter 2. Actually, will come to pass another prophecy from the Old Testament, right? Uh, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirits. Yeah, I highlighted that as we went through those words, pouring out. The coming of God, the coming of the kingdom was, uh, was marked by this pouring out, this, this gushing, this overflowing, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when the kingdom of God comes, when God comes to live among his people once again. And when that happens, his people are, are cleansed. They're, they're saved from their enemies. They're secure with God. He will be with them. And I don't know if you noticed as we read through those passages, there's this sense of intimate presence of God with his people like never before. This overflowing overwhelming, saturating, satisfying presence of God, blessing and abundance for you and your children and your children's children. This is what the people were looking forward to. This is what the Messiah was coming to bring. And this is what John the Baptist said, he's coming and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Just imagine as the crowds gathered, fever pitch was being reached. Excitement, energy, electricity. And now John the Baptist is saying, Jesus has come. He's here to give you this. He's here to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm just baptizing with water. What is water? He's here to baptize you with the real stuff, with the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one who is charged with inaugurating this great day of of the Lord, this coming of the kingdom of God now. And as we'll see next week, it is no surprise to us, therefore, when Jesus gets up and the first message from his mouth, the preaching, is this. The time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is coming. I'm here. There's so much we can say together about this idea of baptism and the Holy Spirit. It's full of longing, full of meaning, and we'll see this fleshed out about what it looked like for Jesus as we go through the Gospel of Mark. As we see the kingdom coming through his life and his ministry, as we hear the charge for us to enter it and to demonstrate it and to show it to others out there. So as we bring things to a close... Here we have at the start the presentation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As Mark would have it, he's the son of God. And here he is bringing the kingdom to us. And even here in these early phrases, implicit within that call is an invitation for us to to join in, to get caught up in this great story that is beginning here, to enter in and to enjoy it and to receive the benefits Jesus in the gospel is coming to us. He has come to us. He cleans us up. He forgives us at great cost to himself. And he places you and I into his new community, the kingdom of God. We access all of this through recognizing, responding, and receiving.